Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista. In the work that I do here, I try to focus on very important issues about imperialism, geopolitics, international geopolitical economy, issues that have a profound impact on the entire world, especially on working people. And I try to keep my focus on these issues that are affecting average people's lives and not get you know, caught up in stupid political drama, especially interpersonal issues. Unfortunately, the way that social media corporations work is the algorithm encourages clout chasers and grifters who engage in infantile ad hominem attacks, attacking people personally and trying to distract from important political issues and instead make things about dumb personal disputes and who you know, is the best debater and all this ridiculous nonsense. And of course, they're profiting from it. There are a lot of people making a lot of money off of that. And I think a lot of them are profoundly unserious and don't even really believe in some of the things that they're saying politically. So I'm going to talk about this one time in one video and podcast, and I'm not going to ever acknowledge it again. It is a waste of time. And I, as a journalist, am trying to spend my time working on reporting on political issues and economic issues that affect working people that try to explain imperialism and how imperialism is oppressing the world and how capitalism is oppressing the world. So one time here, I'm going to briefly acknowledge this clout chaser, self-identified clout chaser, who's named Jackson Hinkle. Now, I've ignored this uh, ridiculous character and I have not responded to his ridiculous false ad hominem attacks, but he's continued to spread completely fake claims about me, completely false fabricated claims that are frankly legally actionable. And instead of making the discussion about politics and economics and imperialism and capitalism, grifters like him try to make everything about a personal battle and then they post these strange videos without shirts, you know, saying that if you don't debate me, you're a coward because all they're really interested in is getting more clicks, getting more money, getting more followers and trying to be famous through making themselves Internet celebrities. Jackson Hinkle, this character, has acknowledged this. He did a live stream and in the live stream, he said this is an exact quote. I'll play the clip after this. He said, quote, I do everything for the clout. You will never see me do something not for the clout. That's the only way I operate. Here's that clip. I did it for the clout. I do everything for the clout. Nice. You will never see me do something what not for the clout. The That's the only way I operate. That is the only way I operate. There is a great flip though. Like You don't have any character. You don't have cap detection. Oh my god, did Inkbytes just say I don't have character? <laughs> did, I've been carrying the stream the entire fucking night and Inkbytes just said I don't have character? Chat. No, I did don't mean like that? content, I mean like morality. Like how can we trust anything you say yeah. if you do everything for content? So when a narcissist says that they do everything for clout and they don't actually believe in what they're doing politically, we should take them at their word. It's probably the only thing that we can take them at their word on. Now, this clout chaser, this so-called conservative communist who's by no stretch of the imagination a communist in no way whatsoever. He also uses his platform to encourage people to invest in gold and works with conservative companies that also work with right-wing libertarian Ron Paul, a major enemy of socialism, certainly communism. 
And even this same company works with Steve Bannon, this far-right Donald Trump operative. And he, as this video clip I'll show here, he encouraged, Hinkle encourages people to work with this company to invest in gold and silver. This is the definition of grifting. I would say the most prime opportunity that you've ever probably been given to protect your wealth. So go talk to my friends at birchgold.com forward slash Jackson. Please safeguard your wealth against inflation and diversify your savings in gold and silver. It's a little known IRS loophole that uh, those in elite circles know about, but you've probably never heard of because they don't tell us these secrets. Why should you do it right now? You got Joe Biden that's putting the entire uh, strength of the global dollar reserve at risk so he can wage a proxy war with Russia and soon enough a proxy war with China. They're putting everything on the line because of their delusional imperialistic fantasies and that includes putting your wealth on the line because your wealth is currently probably attached to the dollar. We have an inflation crisis the likes of which we haven't seen uh, before we have you know the decline of real wages. This is the time now more than ever before to go talk to my friends at birchgold.com. You get a free kit on our website and the other reasons why you should work with them is because they're not some stupid business. They work with the man, the myth, the legend, Ron Paul, and they work with me. They're a great company. Go check it out. Go give them a you know talk. And we should keep in mind here that this figure, Jackson Hinkle, back in 2019, he ran for office as a Democrat, as a mainstream lib liberal Democrat, demonizing homeless people. And he lost, of course, he ran for city council and he lost. Of course, in 2019, I, as a journalist, was reporting in Venezuela on the U.S. empire's coup attempt against the democratically elected socialist government in Venezuela. So the fact that this person who ran as a neoliberal Democrat in 2019 and is now rebranded as a pro-Trump so-called MAGA communist is trying to, uh, you know, engage in this ridiculous infantile behavior, I think says a lot about who this person is. This is the last thing I'll say here, and I wanted to cut in the rest of this video to the part of a discussion that I had with my friend, Danny Haifong, who's a great journalist. Everyone who's watching or listening to this should go over to The Left Lens with Danny Haifong on YouTube. They should support him on patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. This is the discussion that Danny and I had about this ridiculous concept of so-called MAGA communism or patriotic socialism. And like I said, this is the last time that I'm going to be acknowledging these ridiculous ad hominem infantile attacks. This is it. And I encourage everyone to ignore these characters who are clearly grifters. I certainly will be ignoring them from now on. So here is this discussion I had with Denny Haifong focused on the actual political and economic issues that, uh, that impact working people around the world. The last topic on the order of the day for, for this conversation is this concept of mega communism. So I know that there have been Twitter exchanges, there have been uh, unfortunately name calling, which I found to be um, just uh, not in good taste. But let's talk about the idea, okay? Because, uh, you know, we're both we both consider ourselves socialist, uh, not socialist as in small d democratic socialist, but socialist in the tradition of communism and Marxism. So 
I want to know your thoughts about this. And uh, perhaps, you know, let's just throw out maybe like a, a devil's advocate question. I addressed this last night on my stream. It isn't for me. I don't, I don't need, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely comment what you have to say, but I don't, I don't need to open with a big introduction about my opinion on it. But let me just ask you a question. So a lot of the criticism against our position and in your position in particular is, well, you don't want to go to the working class whites. You don't want to appeal to them. You don't want to try to win them over to communism. What would you say, or you don't want to unite them, should we say, against uh, the forces of globalism? I don't even want to use that term. Let's just say global capital for our sake. The deep states, you don't want to do that because you're not willing to engage with MAGA. What do you have to say to that? I mean, it's ridiculous on so many levels. Just a few things. First of all, globalism doesn't exist. It's a right-wing buzzword. It's called imperialism and capitalism. And we have to have a scientific economic understanding of what imperialism is and how it operates. Globalism is a term that obscures that and tries to separate imperialism from capitalism. And if you try to do that, you can't understand what's actually happening. Second of all, the idea that like I'm not interested in challenging the deep state is very funny and hilarious because I, at Multipolarista, in fact, have a series with the leftist historian Aaron Good, Marxist-influenced historian, and it's called Empire and the Deep State, and it's a history of the U.S. empire and the U.S. deep state from a materialist, socialist understanding to actually grasp at what the deep state is as the reflection of the U.S. capitalist class, of large corporate oligarchs, of capitalist interests driving the interests of the U.S. state and the U.S. empire. If you try to separate capitalism and a materialist understanding from imperialism in the deep state, all you're going to do is end up getting weird right-wing racist conspiracies about like Jews or the Illuminati or whatever. Like that, you need, we need to have an actual understanding. Now, let's talk about this idea of so-called MAGA communism. It's ridiculous on so many levels. First of all, we need to separate this whole idea of the so-called white working class from MAGA. First of all, the working class is not white. The working class has no race. The working class is international. There are white workers but the white working class, it does not exist. There's no white working class. There is a working class and there are white workers and there are black workers and Asian workers, but it is a working class, right? The idea of like going after the white working class, that's another form of identity politics. Why are you trying to appeal specifically to white people? You should appeal to workers on a working class basis. The idea that I have, I don't know anything about like white workers is absurd. Like my family's from Ohio, like, from Cleveland, Ohio, which is a deindustrialized area. I went to school in Kentucky. Like, I, I know these parts of the United States quite well, right? Okay, MAGA is not a political movement. MAGA is not a movement. MAGA is a campaign slogan created by Donald Trump, quite literally, on a hat, a merchandising slogan used to run for election as U.S. president, which is the the chief commander in chief of the US empire on behalf of the US capitalist class there cannot and be there can never be anything progressive yet alone revolutionary or anti-hegemonic or anti-systemic about maga quite literally it is a campaign slogan linked at the umbilical cord to Donald Trump when they say maga they mean we support Donald Trump you can't separate that from Donald Trump he literally coined the term he literally put it on his hats that he sold in his campaign site and used it to run for president. Okay, now let's talk about Donald Trump himself. The idea that all white workers in the United States support Donald Trump is preposterous. It is completely ridiculous. 
All right. In 2016, in the presidential election, there was 56% voter turnout. 56% voter turnout. That means 44% of eligible voters did not participate. That's not including the, the large numbers of people in the United States who have been disenfranchised, especially disproportionately black people. Okay, 46% of the 56% turnout voted for Trump. That's 63 million people. That is 25% of adults in the United States voted for Donald Trump in 2016. In 2020, there was 67% voter turnout, so a little higher, and 47% voted for Trump. That's 28% of U.S. adults. So in both elections, we're talking about just around one quarter of people voted for Donald Trump. Okay, why are we not talking about the 44% of people who did not vote in the 2016 election? I think that that's a much more opportune base for people to recruit if you're looking to try to build socialism, to build a movement outside the two capitalist imperialist parties. Why are these opportunists only trying to go after people who support Donald Trump? Because it's not political for them. They, they don't actually believe this, I think, in many senses. This is strictly grifting. It is opportunism. They're making money off of it. They recognize there's a large base of right-wingers who have a lot of money. Because another part of this is that the people who voted for Donald Trump were not disproportionately working class. On the contrary, they were disproportionately upper middle class in wealthy suburbs. On average, they were more affluent than people who voted Democrat. Now, I'm not supporting voting Democrat. I've never voted Democrat. I have never supported voting Democrat. I have an established record of this going back much longer than these so-called MAGA communists, many of whom were Democrats quite literally three years ago running for office on a mainstream liberal democratic platform, literally in 2019. Okay? So why are we not talking about the tens of millions or potentially over 100 million people in the United States, working class people who are disenfranchised, who don't believe in the political process, who recognize correctly that both ruling class capitalist imperialist parties do not serve their working class interests? Why are people instead doing a reverse lesser evilism? And this to me, Danny, is incredible because what they're doing is exactly what the social democrats were doing in the in the past 10 years is to say we have to vote democrat because they're lesser evil all these so-called maga communists who are not communists in any way according to any consistent definition of the term they're not even socialists these people are doing the exact opposite they're doing a re reverse lesser evilism they're saying that we should recruit among republicans we should basically cater our politics to the Republican Party and say that the Republicans are lesser evil and tell people quite literally to vote for Donald Trump. That's what these so-called MAGA communists are doing, literally. They're saying vote for Donald Trump. This is the exact polar inver inversion of the pro-imperialist liberals like Bosch who say vote for the Democrats every year, vote for Joe Biden. They are the polar inversion of each other. Ironically, they're both patriotic so-called socialists who wag the genocidal U.S. flag and talk about how great the U.S. is. They're quite literally polar inversions of each other. That's why I've mostly avoided this. It's a distraction. They're not serious. They're not socialists. They're certainly not communists. What they're trying to do is redefine communism and redefine socialism to say that actually we're, com we're, we're conservatives, but we're also communists. What, what are you talking about? They're actually just redefining communism they certainly have no theoretical understanding of Marxism, Leninism. Give me a break. They're redefining even socialism to make it 
the same as conservatism and say, oh, we're just conservatives. And of course, at the end of the day, they're profiting from it. These people are profoundly unserious. They're not a member of a party. They're not a member of an organization. They don't believe in collective action. They believe in their own personal brands to make money, to sell gold, quite literally, to do ads to sell gold alongside Steve Bannon and Ron Paul for this company called Birch Gold. This is not a project for political transformation, and it's profoundly unserious. And that's why before and after, I have refused to engage with them. Today, I wanted to engage with this ridiculous concept. But after this, I'm just going to ignore it because it's, it's not, it's all grifting. It's not a serious political tendency. And even if, you know, in, in, in my opinion, right, like for me, we can obviously see, and I think a lot of what you brought up is that it is totally reasonable to assume, right? Especially with, with some of the actions and especially the name calling and then all of the, the ways that this has been approached, right, can, can definitely get the sense that this is not serious. But even if we were to concede, right, that, all right, grifting this or that, whatever, like we can concede, let's just, let's just take that, shelve that. When we even just look at the idea, however, right, the idea of this, I think the, the most poignant point that you made and that I wholeheartedly agree with is that there's no reflection upon what this means strategically, right? Because on the one hand, if you are a working class white person who uh, lives in a Trump dominated area, right? And you're trying to organize them in some kind of way. This is just an abstract thing. You're trying to organize them some kind of way toward socialism. Then if that's your strategy and you're just doing a poor job by saying we're going to do MAGA communism and that's the strategy, then I think I would be a little more forgiving and even just more open about about this as a trend. But that doesn't it's just this is that's just not what it is, because there's this big kind of elephant in the room of, well, you have the majority of young working class people already thinking about socialism. You have the material conditions where you have most people in the United States hold, either holding their nose for either party or not voting at all because, as you said, they're disenfranchised or they're just not voting. So you have this massive base of people who are willing to talk about alternatives, third parties, socialism, and we're focusing on a very small subsection where only a small subsection of that MAGA camp, if we can even call it a MAGA camp, People don't vote for Donald Trump or anybody really underneath MAGA all the time. People swaying back and forth. If you want to focus on uh, the entire working class, then why is it that there's so much of the working class that's being ignored? And with this framing, it inherently alienates a large subsection of that working class. For me, my big problem is you are seeding. Everyone who is, you could call them under the Democratic Party camp or for uh, maybe uh, fun terms, right? America was already great camp because that's how the Democratic Party views uh, the MAGA camp, right? It's MAGA. What are you talking about? America's already great. That's what Hillary Clinton said. That's what, Obama, you know, all these neoliberals said. So you're conceding everyone who may be in that camp, but 
is very disillusioned by it, disaffected, and thinking about socialism, organizing, they're organizing labor unions in places that have never been organized before. They're uh, uh, thinking about socialism seriously. Why are we, cons- what, what, what is, for me, what is the interest in going for Mag for MAGA, right? What, what for me, it, it just it doesn't make any sense in that way. It's not good strategy. It, it, no one is saying ignore everybody who voted for Trump. Certainly, you know, if people are open and willing to hear things and and and, and change their opinion, then of course we should talk to them. But at the same time, that's another abstract scenario. We're talking about the reality of the situation of this being targeting a, a, a maybe a, a very active online segment of the population, but very marginal section of the population in terms of the actual existing conditions of the United States. And we're not even talking about the rest of the world. Yeah. So the argument that these so-called MAGA communists, who are the same as the patriotic socialists, I mean, they're, they're, it's the same people and it's it's the same argument. And of course, the, page, the so-called patriotic socialists have a lot in common with the so-called national socialists, especially considering neither is socialist. We'll talk about that in a second. I mean, there's a significant fascist undercurrent here that we need to understand theoretically, but we'll get to that in a second. First of all, let's talk about this idea that if you oppose MAGA, you oppose white people or something, which is just insane white identity politics. These people criticize so-called identity politics. They're promoting white identity politics. The reality is that people, working class white people in the United States have a variety of views. Some vote for for Republicans, some vote for Democrats. The majority don't vote. And again, we need to look at the actual class position of many of the people who voted for Trump. They were disproportionately petty bourgeois, so-called upper middle class, wealthy people in the suburbs, especially, you know, what what Trump called the great, the the boat, uh, what do you call them, the boat owners or whatever his 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 great boat people in florida referring to like all of these people living in these gated communities in florida who are the the small business owners who exploit multiple employees and have like boats or whatever the beautiful boat people is what he called them i think so we're we're not talking about working class people we're talking about petty bourgeois honestly if you want to look at the class conflict between the republicans and the democrats it is largely a conflict between the national bourgeoisie elements in the United States and financial bourgeois. And obviously both are enemies of socialism, especially in the context of an empire. Trump's base are largely those national bourgeois construction uh, elements, petty bourgeois elements. And then of course, behind the Democrats, you have financial capital, you have Silicon Valley. Both parties are thoroughly capitalist, neoliberal imperialist parties. And Trump himself governed as a complete neoliberal and as a complete imperialist. Not only did he wage an economic war in Venezuela, killing thousands of Venezuelans with illegal murderous sanctions and and overseeing a right-wing coup attempt. Not only did he oversee the far-right coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia. Not only did he kill Qasem Soleimani, the top Iranian general, and basically try to start a war with Iran while expanding sanctions on Iran. Not only did he expand the sanctions on Cuba and try to destroy Cuba, not only did he expand the war on Yemen, not only did he refuse to end the war in Afghanistan that he claimed he was going to do, not only did he boast about occupying 
militarily the oil-rich regions and wheat-rich regions of Syria and boast that we're taking their oil. Not only did Trump recognize Jerusalem, occupy Jerusalem as the fake capital of apartheid Israel and provide even more support for apartheid Israel, not only did Trump continue expanding the U.S. empire in all of those ways, furthermore, Trump oversaw the largest wealth transfer from working class to capitalist class in modern history with these tax breaks for the rich. There's in, in no way can you call Trump a pro-working class president or MAGA, which is not a movement. Again, it's a campaign slogan. It is in no way pro-working class. If you talk to a lot of poor white workers, as I've done in Appalachia, again, I went to school, high school and college in Kentucky. I've been to rural Appalachia, to areas that were devastated by mountaintop removal, by surface mining. I've, I've, I, I have family members in who had factory jobs in Cleveland, Ohio, and they lost their jobs. They had good union jobs, and they lost their jobs through offshoring. Like, like I, I, it's not like I've never talked to working class white people. Like, it's, it's absurd. Like, a lot of them don't believe in politics. They always say that the U.S. political system is corrupt. It's hopelessly corrupt. It can't be changed. It doesn't matter who you vote for because nothing will change. I have family members, a lot of family members in Ohio who voted for Trump. And a lot of them ended up saying, well, actually, Trump ended up not really changing anything. So these opportunists who are not communists, talking about so-called MAGA communism, they're simply grifters. They're trying to appeal to a right-wing base to make money. And what we should talk about, Danny, is they're more than willing to throw black people under the bus, indigenous nations under the bus, Latinos under the bus, and especially LGBT, LGBTQ people under the bus. We see them saying blatantly anti-trans, blatantly homophobic things. Like trans, trans people are some of the most marginalized, oppressed people in the United States. The Democratic Party, for opportunistic reasons, has pretended to kind of care about trans people, although it's done nothing to actually help them. So, so these opportunists say, oh, the ruling class supports trans people. Therefore, we should throw trans people under the bus. These are the most marginalized people in society. Why are you demonizing them? They're just scapegoating poor, marginalized, oppressed people to, to build their followings. That's the definition of opportunism. There's nothing progressive or left-wing and certainly revolutionary or socialist about that. They're also saying that we should reach out to literal white supremacists. Not every white worker is a racist. A lot of white workers actually interact more commonly with black people and Latinos and indigenous people than white capitalists living in their elite bubbles, working you know, at a big corporation or whatever. The idea that like all white workers in rural areas are all just like racist white supremacists, therefore you know, we, we, you know, uh, we, we should be racist to appeal to them, that is condescending to them. These racist Republicans do not represent average white working people. The, the whole point of this fake right populism is they're pretending to appeal to, to workers, ironically, by using identity politics. So you see Hannity and like all these Fox pundits, they're like, oh, we're the smelly Walmart people, right? Like we, we shop at Walmart. That's not appealing to working class people. That is literally identity politics. So this is all, this is completely ridiculous. And this idea, for instance, they talk, for instance, about the young patriots. They don't know anything oh, yeah. about the young patriots. The young patriots were revolutionary socialists who protested against police brutality. And yes, unfortunately, 
At the beginning, they used the Confederate flag, but when they began collaborating with the Panthers, they were convinced to stop using the Confederate flag. They recognized that the Confederate flag was a symbol of white supremacy and slavery. They stopped using it, and their leaders, their co-founders said very clearly, we have to combat against racism. We have to fight racism. So why do these opportunists think that literal racists, like Tucker Carlson, he's a literal white nationalist. You can watch his show. He talks about how immigrants are taking over the country. He, he talks about great replacement theory. He referred to Iraqis as semi-illiterate primitive monkeys. He he, he talked he, about the British Empire as being the most benign that's ever been and for India. Civilized India. For India. For India. Look at the look at that train station in India. Forget the massive famines and mass slaughters during or the Or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who referred to Black Lives Matter, a mass movement. And yes, there were Democrats who tried to co opportunistically co-opt it. There were corporations and foundations that tried to co-opt it. I've been very critical of that. But Black Lives Matter fundamentally has always been rooted in a working class black struggle led by, by poor marginalized black communities. And yeah, there are opportunists working for the Ford Foundation, but they're not the actual leaders. And the reality is that this is a massive movement with huge popular support and strong revolutionary potential. And these opportunists are saying that we should attack Black Lives Matter, attack, attack anti-fascists. They literally attack anti-fascists and Antifa. And they say that Black Lives Matter is all, you know, Soros or whatever, which is, by the way, I mean, I've, I, I of, of the people on the left, I've been critical of Soros, al along with other billionaire capitalist oligarchs who work with the CIA and CIA cutouts to, to do counterinsurgency against the left. I've criticized Soros, but you have to do it within a particular context. Just saying that they're all Soros is verging on anti-Semitic dog whistle that the right wing uses. Like, if you, don't, you, if you talk about Soros, but you don't talk about Pierre Omidyar, if you don't talk about, you know, Jeff Bezos, if you don't talk about the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation, if you don't talk about the other big foundation money and only right. source, it's pretty suspicious. But anyway, the point is that these people demonize Black Lives Matter. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that Black Lives Matter is the biggest threat to the United States. She campaigned literally doing two separate ads, shooting the word socialism, shooting the word socialism that. and saying socialism is a threat to the United States. So she says black people and socialism are the threat, are threats to the United States. You cannot find common cause with these literal white nationalists. They are far right demagogues. If you think that they are more representative of your politics than, than these, these like so-called democratic socialists who I have many criticisms of, then that says to me much more about your politics. You're not actually on the left. Obviously, I mean, we can talk about the whole Bernie thing. I was very yeah, critical yeah. of Bernie and the squad and all of that. I'm very critical of them. But if you genuinely think that Tucker Carlson, who quite literally praises the genocidal British Empire and and literally says white supremacist slogans on his TV show and refers to Iraqis as semi-illiterate primitive monkeys, if you say that you have more in common with him than Bernie Sanders, that's saying a lot about you. Well, I want to also I want to just say that, too, there is, I think, this like incredible confusion about political leaders and people, right? So if your goal is to win over people who are bamboozled by Trump, you know, they have economic populism, Trump said NATO this, Russia detente that, those aren't things that neither of us opposed. But at the same time, if you're not going to uh, also understand 
that if you're going to win people over to socialism, you also have to counter the incredible backwardness of uh, the Trump phenomenon. We have like a journal report have been calling the Republican Party, the white man's party uh, for, for since way before Donald Trump, because that's that's the history, the history of the Republican Party, the history of the GOP is when black people fought for their self-determination, for what some people call civil rights, but really just for fundamental human rights against segregation, against discrimination, uh, against uh, state violence. Uh, once those uh, efforts started to bear fruit with the Democratic Party, which, you know, Lyndon Johnson was uh, elected uh, at that time, once there started to be my, my, you know, modest reforms, that's when all of the Southern reactionary, what we're called Dixiecrats, they flooded the Republican Party. And that is what the Republican Party is right now. So if we're not combating that, we're missing a huge side of, if we're communist, dialectics. There's a huge side of this dialectic of there are these backward ideas. Marjorie Taylor Greene shooting socialism matters. Uh, massive characterizations of Black Lives Matter as just some source-funded operation without understanding the hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, I should say, who marched under that banner without any organization, but literally want to see racist policing stop. And they want to see a whole lot of other things too around mass incarceration. And if you don't understand how important that is to the class struggle and to socialism and communism, I, I don't know what we're doing here. Like you get, you got to address all sides of the dialectic. You can do whatever you want in trying to appeal to that certain subsection. At this point, that's not my strategy, but I'm not going to say you got to come onto my strategy because there's uh, obviously no interest in it. Do you, but understand that here are the objective conditions that automatically place this uh, idea and concept in a very, very perilous situation. And if we care about working class people, we, you know, I also too, I mean, I grew up in Boston, lots of working class whites there, uh, went to school with a lot of them. It was a very quote unquote diverse school system, but the vast majority growing up and also in, as you know, I work, so I've been working a lot of my life as I uh, uh, balance and juggle this kind of work. A everyone I've met hasn't been, oh, my God, we got to go MAGA this, MAGA that. No, it is actually profound disillusionment, as you said, and complete distrust in the government. Sometimes that's progressive. Sometimes that's reactionary because guess what? The Young Patriots recognize this. White America has been bamboozled and embedded with racist ideas in order to serve capital. That's the history of the United States. It wasn't just the bourgeoisie that were watching lynchings. That's not how it works. We have to confront this incredible contradiction. This isn't to say all white people are dominated by racist ideas and they're going to act on their racism, but it means that it makes a profound impact on the material conditions of the working class, and it does influence political behavior. Donald Trump would not have campaigned the way he did in both cycles and wouldn't have governed the way he did if it wasn't impactful, if it didn't matter. He wouldn't have talked about China the way he did. He wouldn't have talked about immigrants the way he did. And despite all the contradictions, and this is all true, you know, uh, 
Trump, a lot of the ways, was stymied in terms of immigration. There were actually fewer deportations because local Democrats were like, okay, we're not going to play ball here because there's not a lot of accountability. It doesn't take a lot of effort to oppose something like this. So actually, there were at least a gradual a uh, small no, decrease in the number of deportations. That's not to credit Donald Trump with that. It's to say that there are major contradictions, but at the same time, he's throwing racist red meat. And there are a lot of people who are down with that. This is the history of the United States. This is the current reality of the United States. And the young patriots understood. I have, I, I, we can pull it up. I have the interview of Redneck, Redneck Revolt uh, of their founding leader who said, this was part of our mission to to combat racism within working class white communities because it was a distraction. It actually created disunity. And when we came under the direction of the Black Panther Party, because the Rainbow Coalition was not just we're all equal here. The Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, these organizations were way out in front and the Young Patriots were very regionally based. They, they weren't everywhere. They were very regionally based. And they wanted that leadership. And they said, yes, we will. Uh, we want to see a multinational working class movement. So why is it that we aren't talking about a multinational working class movement with the understanding that there are major contradictions that we can talk about publicly? We're not, there's no, it's not canceling. It's not whatever. It's having real, honest political discussions rooted in educating and moving socialist consciousness forward based on the conditions of this very peculiar institution called the United States, which has literally been the most successful at destroying and dividing and, and absolutely dismembering any kind of socialist movement, in part because these issues are not addressed and are not able to be addressed uh, in kind or adequately. Absolutely. I mean, Danny, you, you raised such an important point about the extremely racist, quite literally white supremacist roots of the modern Republican Party. Obviously, I know about party realignment and all that history. I'm not stupid. But in terms of the contemporary Republican Party, they made a deliberate effort to recruit white supremacists. I mean, of course, their links to the World Anti-Communist League and far right organizations and fascists. Quite literally, the Republican Party has recruited fascists and white supremacists. Now, I say that knowing very well that the Democrats right now are also supporting fascists in Ukraine. The Democrats have supported fascists abroad as, as well as the Republicans because both parties are capitalist imperialist parties and US imperialism has supported fascists around the world going back many decades, including to Operation Gladio. This is not new, right? Operation Paperclip. This is bipartisan. And just saying that like trying to bend over backward to make excuses for Republicans and Trump is just another form of lesser evilism. It has nothing to do with being on the left. It's pure opportunism. Now, as for this fundamental contradiction of national oppression, which is a better term for racism, right? National oppression. There are millions, tens of millions of black people in the United States who are descendants of slaves that were taken over by European colonialists and capitalists to exploit their labor as chattel slaves and that their descendants have, you know, they need reparations. They need justice. This is a very real problem. And anyone on the left who claims to care about socialism should support the anti-racist struggle, should support black liberation, should support reparations. Now, the Latino community, especially Chicanos, which have, which also, these are people 
who were colonized by the United States when half of Mexico was stolen in a war of aggression in 1848 and have been systematically discriminated against. Immigrants systematically discriminated against. Indigenous nations, which is a huge part of this. Millions of indigenous people in the United States who have been treated as second, third class citizens who deserve, one, the right to their land and self-determination. Absolutely. Up to and including independence. 100%. Indigenous people deserve that. And yet we, we see so we see such racist condescension from these so-called patriotic socialists and MAGA and all that, whatever. They say, oh, you want to like ethnically cleanse hundreds of millions of white people. No one's calling for that. That's absurd. That is a racist mischaracterization of what indigenous nations themselves are calling for when they want their land, when they want self-determination. These are fundamental to the socialist struggle and have been for over 100 years. In fact, going back to the Second International, people talk about the First, the first World War leading to the split of the Second International in World War I. That is true. At that time, they were all called the Social Democrats, including the Bolsheviks, were part of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. They split in 1916. But it was not just over the fundamental question of the imperialist war of World War I. The Bolsheviks, who became the communists, and the other parts of the Social Democrats who became the communists, they imposed the imperialist war. But it was also about the recognition that Marxists and communists need to recognize that it's not just the struggle against capitalism. It's also a key part of the struggle against national oppression. And Lenin himself always emphasized in all of his writings up until his death, and when he founded the Comintern, that support for national liberation struggles always had to be at, at the same level as the struggle against capitalism. They are part of the same struggle. And that includes the national liberation struggles of black people in the United States, of indigenous nations, of Chicanos and other Latinos and other oppressed nations. That includes indigenous people in Hawaii, which is a colony. That includes Puerto Rico, certainly. That includes the indigenous people of Alaska. We need to recognize that the US is not just a capitalist country. It is a settler colonialist country. And if you're a socialist, you have to struggle against that as well. And Lenin himself, when they were creating the Comintern, Lenin himself said that communists should support even bourgeois democratic, national democratic struggles in the colonies, even if they're not led by socialists. He himself said that, that in the colonies, even if they're led by bourgeois national democratic elements, Marxists and communists should support their liberation struggles. And that certainly in includes inside the imperial core as well. And the fact that these so-called MAGA communists who are not communists, these patriotic socialists who are not socialists, the fact that they're so willing to, th to throw black people and Latinos and indigenous nations under the bus to appeal to Trump's base shows once again that they're profoundly unserious and they're simply charlatans. I hate the, I think one of the big things that I really dislike that I really can't stand, uh, I, I really hate this emphasis on the duopoly. I feel like there is just, so, like there's no attention to what you've been saying, right? Like it's this, okay, this, there's a rev, there's a supposedly revolutionary trend within this one subsection of the duopoly and it negates all of this history and all of this, really the current reality of the situation where, uh, when we talk about the national question, there's all of this like uh, cherry picking from Lenin that goes on around this issue it's like uh, lenin has a lot of works and some of his most important and honestly the most influential 
the most influential works of Lenin are on the national question. That is by there's I, I don't know who would want to argue about that. I mean, I guess you could argue that his uh, his work on organization, sure, which uh, but I think that the because of the world revolutionary movement and socialist movement that arose after 1917, after the Bolshevik Revolution, it cannot be argued, right? That's that's what Ho Chi Minh, that's what uh, basically all socialists were up were holding up, especially those in the colonies, and that's what Lenin recognized that there was a colonial situation that Russia, uh, the uh, republics, that uh, the the ethnic groups, the uh, the nations that were literally trapped within the czarist regime, and then, and then, of course, the pseudo, you could, I guess, parliamentary republic that came after 1905. But there was an entrapping of these nations that they faced the worst conditions. They were super exploited. And then he learned abroad that was happening. And honestly, the Communist Party of the USA had a huge part in helping in 1920 when, as you said, the common turn was found the third international. In revising Marx's famous uh, statement, Marx and Engels' famous statement, the conclusion of the Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World Unite, they revise it to Workers and Oppressed People Unite. That's what Lenin did under the lead, uh, leading the Third International because there was an understanding that oppressed nations were fighting for self-determination, for independence against colonialism, and that was key to the struggle for socialism. If there was going to be any world socialist movement, it's not that it's not about supporting imperialist countries or any subsection of imperialist political parties or anything like that. It's about lending full and unconditional solidarity and support to the struggle of the colonies for liberation, national liberation. And at this time, that struggle is unresolved. It, it, it that just 1920 till 20 nights to 2022. That just didn't end. That is still very much relevant and it's not about oh will people understand this or will people not because i i think the pushback is well you're talking to working class people in a language that they won't understand so how are you ever going to win anyone over well the strategy should be if we are uh, trying to instill socialist consciousness be uh, an agent in this through our work then we should be talking about all issues from a class analysis and uh, ensure that while people are struggling for concrete things, while we are hitting on very poignant issues that people do understand, right, the economic situation, Medicare for all, healthcare, all of these things that people talk about now on the daily, right, uh, the healthcare situation, the housing situation, endless wars, people understand that. But then you add in, you have to, we are not tailless. We don't, we don't, we don't go behind people. We don't say, okay, uh, uh, you you know, we're where we need to be. And we're just going to sit there with you because that's going to help. No, that's not going to help anyone. <laughs> we're getting crushed right now. <laughs> like our, our conditions are worsening. The people are suffering and people are dying. People are being super exploited. Nations are being destabilized. Communists and socialists, we forge ahead. We say, this is what we believe is the correct ideological path, the correct practical path when we're organizing, when we're in organizational context, when we're in, I believe, when we're in media context, educational context, this is the correct ideological path, how to think about things, this is the correct way to think about these issues to inform your organizing, to inform what you're doing day to day to bring about, hopefully the end goal, if this is all we can agree on, is to bring about actual communism. I'm not, 
I, I, I don't believe that's the ultimate goal. I, uh, I definitely don't uh, share that feeling. But if that is, and I'm wrong, then we really do need to be thinking about what, what are we focusing on? Why is it? And you brought up the Democratic Party point really well, the, the Bernie Sanders, AOC, all of that. Why are we dismissing all those forces, right? If Trump forces are duped by Trump, why are we dismissing forces that have maybe been led astray by Democratic socialists, by Bernie Sanders, for example, that have had their hearts broken? I know a lot of people are saying this, hearts absolutely broken and don't know where to go. And what can we do but try to explain the situation and move people in a more a revolutionary direction? It seems to me that the conditions are ripe for that. And that's just one example, by, by no means the only. But, but I also think, too, before uh, I give it back to you, Ben, is, you know, I, I have a real problem with this. Uh, uh, and it's been a thing that, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican parties, whatever you want to call it, MAGA, GOP, Democrats, all of them do this. They paint the entire middle of the country or let's just say the Rust Belt. They paint it all as just bastions of where the working class white American population reside. That is a fundamental uh, uh, error. That there, that is not true. That is a complete oversimplification of the situation. All cities in the Rust Belt that have a population over 100,000 people, it's either a plurality non-white or majority non-white with many black majority cities. All of which, all of these working class people because blacks, Americans make up a large disproportionate number of working class and poor people in this country. All of which are going to tell your MAGA to, you can shove that in, you know, in any which way, because we have a different problem in that the Democratic Party is so strong that no, I'm not mad that GOP that the GOP isn't attractive, but on the other side, because it's all about will we win elections? Can we protect against you know the big bad racists? You we have another problem where the Demo where it's hard to get left ideas out there because of this as well. So we need to address, for me, that's been my organizing principle around my work is how do we uncover the principal role of the Democratic Party as something that stymies progressive, radical, socialist uh, uh, movements and, and their development. To me, that seems to be the principal contradiction. And to respond to that principal contradiction as, well, okay, well, let's, Let's try it with these MAGA folks. To me, misses the point. It misses the actual forces that are being uh, led astray, that have been captured, right, in this duopoly system under the Democratic Party banner, and it just seeds them. Go ahead, you know, uh, go 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 die in the graveyard of social movements. To me, that 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 doesn't uh, uh, that doesn't seem like sound strategy. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And Danny, I mean, you've done so such good work on this over many years about the complete failure of the Democratic Party. The idea that either of us is in any way soft on the Democrats is just preposterous. Like we spent so many years of our lives organizing against the Democrats, trying to build an independent left. But now these people trying to, to work with Republicans and try to move the left toward the Republicans and not move the Republicans toward the left is pure opportunism. But uh, there's a few points I want to make here that you mentioned. Two, two points I want to address. One, the ridiculously dishonest, disingenuous misquoting of famous, you know, important 
uh, revolutionary leaders like Lenin, Mao, and others. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because it's just so disingenuous. And then also the idea that as the so-called patriotic socialists and the so-called MAGA communists, neither of whom are socialists or communists, they claim that it's easier and better to recruit conservatives and Trump supporters than like liberals or social Democrats or Bernie supporters. It's completely pre preposterous. First of all, they also don't understand the most basic history of this. They'll selectively mention a few things about Lenin. Like for instance, Lenin's tried to recruit some people from some groups in Russia that were backward and had some reactionary views. Okay. Yeah. I mean that all societies have these contradictions. That doesn't mean that just because someone has reactionary views, they're completely lost, right? That's true, of course, that Lenin recognized that. But what they for fail to recognize is that Lenin always understood. Lenin, who, by the way, was not against, uh, you know, who, who supported building an independent left-wing party and working within the bourgeois parliamentary framework. He was not one of these people who was like, we cannot have any engagement with the bourgeois parliamentary system. He encouraged that, but of course, by building your own leftist party, right? So... At the same time, Lenin recognized when the provisional government was created by Kerensky, led by these so-called socialist revolutionaries who were neither socialists nor revolutionaries, the SRs, Lenin took this position saying that we should allow the social democrats to fail and recruit the disillusioned social, social democrat. I mean, at, at that time, they were all called social democrats, which was confusing about it. The Bolsheviks were called social democrats, although they were to the left of the socialist revolutionaries. Anyway, whatever. The point is Lenin recognized that the SRs should be allowed to fail, and then the Bolsheviks should recruit the people who were disillusioned with Kerensky and the SRs. And that's exactly what happened. And there are literally millions of people, especially young people in the United States, but not only young people, who had all this popular energy and enthusiasm, who were excited and politicized by the Bernie movement. I myself was critical of Bernie. I know you were critical of Bernie, but we also recognize that there was genuinely a popular movement behind him, especially a lot of young people who had never been introduced to socialist politics before. This was their first introduction. I know a lot of those people who became socialists and communists and Marxist-Leninists and joined other organizations. The idea that them, or that even people who support like the so-called squad, like I'm not talking about AOC as an individual. I'm talking about people who support them and they're what they claim to be, right? The idea that, that people who are actually anti-imperialists and socialists and are serious about revolutionary change, the idea that we can't recruit the, them and try to work with them and develop their politics, instead that we should recruit people who are literal conservatives and in some cases are people who are sympathetic to white supremacists and, and demonize LGBTQ people and demonize immigrants, it is a completely preposterous view. I'm not saying that all conservatives or even all people who vote for Republicans are completely lost and can never be convinced and won over. But if you think that they're the only ones who can be won over and liberals and social Democrats and so-called democratic socialists can't be won over, I'm sorry, you're just high. You're either high or you're profoundly unserious and you're a grifter and you're just trying to make money from right-wingers, which I think a lot of these so-called patriotic socialists are doing. Now, the other quick point that I mentioned here, Danny, about misquoting Lenin and Mao. I've seen, for instance, there's been so much misquoting of Lenin on the national question against indigenous liberation, which is incredible. Trying to be people arguing against giving land back to indigenous nations. 
I mean, that, that it's so profoundly unserious and dishonest. But an even more incredibly ridiculous example of this, as I've seen some of these so-called patriotic socialists, they've, they've, they've quoted, selectively quoted lines from Mao from Patriotism and Internationalism, which is from this collection from the Red Book, right? The famous Red Book with all the quotes of Mao. He has, an, in chapter 18, he has a section, Patriotism and Internationalism. And they selectively take lines from what Mao said and literally ignore the main thrust of what Mao was saying. This is what Mao wrote. Can a communist who is an internationalist at the same time be a patriot? We hold that he cannot, can, not only can be, but must be. So Danny, they take that quote and said from Mao that if you're a communist, you have to be a patriot. But what they leave out is the rest of what Mao said. He said, the specific content of patriotism is determined by historical conditions. There is the so-called patriotism of the Japanese aggressors and of Hitler, and there is our patriotism. Communists must resolutely oppose the so-called patriotism of the Japanese aggressors and Hitler. He says, the communists in J of Japan and Germany are defeatists. With, with regard to the wars being waged by their countries. And then later on, he says, the victory of China and the defeat of the invading imperialists will help the people of other countries. Thus, in wars of national liberation, patriotism is applied to internationalism. He's literally saying the opposite of what the so-called patriot, so, patriotic socialists are saying. He's saying, in the context of an imperialist nation, you have to wish for the defeat revolutionary defeatism of your own your own so-called government that is the u.s government must be defeated the european imperialist governments must be defeated he's not saying that you should be a u.s patriot he's saying you should wish for the defeat of the u.s government against the revolutionary patriotic struggles of the colonies of people in the core i mean in the periphery not in the core of people in the so-called third world in the global south their patriotic struggles against imperialism are progressive. The so-called patriotic struggles in the imperial core must be struggles of revolutionary defeatism against the imperialist government. So you can't, you can't take the patriotic and also nationalist struggles that are left-wing and progressive struggles against imperialism in the global south, in Cuba, in Vietnam, in Korea, in the Congo, in... Uh, Zimbabwe and Mozambique and Angola and Nicaragua. You can't take those nationalist left-wing struggles and then transpose that into the imperial core, especially to a settler colonialist country where decolonization has actually never, we've never had decolonization in the United States. We need decolonization and you can't talk about patriotism until you have decolonization. Yeah, and I, and I think also too is if, you know, again, uh, and often a, a counter, right, is that we, you know, that there's an interest in using the messaging of American patriotism to align it with socialist and communist principles. And now it's not like this doesn't have historical precedent. I mean, this has been a struggle amongst uh, left forces, working class organizations. The CP had a lot of struggles with this. Uh, even the Black Panther Party, right, cited the American uh, Declaration of Independence uh, in their uh, initial 10-point program. 
to state why they were coming out against the U.S. government and saying this, these are the things that we want unconditionally, which also included a national plebiscite, uh, basically separating uh, black America from the rest of the country. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that if you want to say that American patriotism and I'm open, I, you know, Midwestern marks and forces like this, I'm open to having conversations. If you want to try to apply that model to concrete working class organization to certain forces that you may think really need to hear that first, then I'm open to you doing that. However, there's the there's I think a, a really just uh, uh to me, just a complete and utter distortion of Marxism and of socialism, which says that American patriotism is akin to the patriotism that was forged during national liberation movements for independence and or socialism. And that, to me, is one of the most egregious, insulting, absolutely disgusting distortions, because there is nothing similar between the patriotism the, the nationalism, like for example, in China or in Cuba, to that that has been developed in the United States. There is absolutely nothing similar. It, gets, it completely flies in the face of the relationship between imperialist countries and oppressed countries, imperialist nations and oppressed nations. There's nothing at all similar, right? The, 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 uh, there are oppressed nations in the United States. The U.S. as a whole is not an oppressed nation. It is an oppressor nation, if we're going to use the Lenin that also the language that also Lenin used to describe imperialist countries. It is an oppressor nation that impresses, that exploits and super exploits nations in the United States, in these borders, as well as outside of them. That patriotism cannot just be dogmatically generalized to be equal to or akin to the very patriotism that responded to imperialism. That was a response to the century of humiliation in China, to the semi-colonial, neo-colonial arrangement that Cuba found itself in for so many decades. It just cannot be compared, and it doesn't help because the uh, a lot of without making that differentiation, people are going to be confused about the differences between these countries, and once they find out they may not be open to it anymore. They may not like, I am all for, if you are for, this is one of the things that I, you know, that I appreciate, especially in the early, you know, in the early period during this discussion, when it first emerged among patriarch socials. Now my communism I see is a lot less serious, but when, you know, Midwestern Mars and these forces were talking about patriarch, like all of them, they support unconditionally socialist countries. Right. And, you know, that's that is very commendable. However, to take this then and to try to create a, a relationship that doesn't exist, one that actually there's a huge difference between, then we're talking about distortions for what? Right? We don't have to, we we just can see things clearly. We can see that the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, we can see that national liberation struggles are fighting for things that are quite different than what American patriotism inherently from its foundations you know, uh, uh, is consumed with, is prioritized with. And no matter how you try to spin it, even if you want to brand yourself as an American patriot who agrees with everything about socialist countries and national liberation struggles, 
even then we're talking about likely something that is going to fail quite uh, uh, quite soon because this doesn't have any practical application. Most folks who are the most vehemently patriotic are the most vehemently anti-communist. And so how do you reckon with that contradiction? That is the, the when there have been upsurges in the modern period of patriotism in the United States, it's been during Jim Crow and during the era of McCarthyism, during the war on terror. Those were not good periods for socialists, for communists, and for anyone struggling for, uh, you know, uh, for liberation from imperialism. Yeah, and we have to also think about not even just the, the fundamental distinction in that patriotism and nationalism, I get that they're not exactly the same thing. I get that people try to split hairs, but they're very closely related phenomena. In a country that is colonized or partially colonized, patriotism and nationalism can be progressive. Not always, but they usually can be a progressive force of unifying the oppressed nation against the foreign occupier, against colonialism and imperialism, especially when that movement is, of course, led by a socialist, led by a progressive. We've seen many examples across the global south. You, you can't in any way compare that to so-called patriotism in the imperial core. But even aside from that, we have to acknowledge the material reality of the, the history of so-called patriotism in the United States, its connotations with things like you were just talking about, with McCarthyism, uh, slavery, with Jim Crow and lynchings, with the war on terror. You can't separate that history of patriotism and say, we're just redefining patriotism to mean what we want it to mean, and we're going to reappropriate national symbols to mean what we want them to mean. You can't do that. Now, imagine a leftist, a socialist, a, even a communist in apartheid Israel decided they want to reappropriate the Israeli flag and try to build a patriotic Israeli communist movement. That would be preposterous, completely ludicrous. Anyone who would try that would be insane. But why is it so different in the United States? Clearly, Palestinians would be completely suspicious of anyone trying to reappropriate the Israeli flag. And that you, but ask people in Puerto Rico, in the United States, in itself, in oppressed nations, among you know indigenous nations, uh, Latino communities. Ask especially people across West Asia, North Africa, and in Latin America. I know Latin America pretty well. The symbol of the U.S. flag here is seen as a symbol of oppression to a level that's not so sim not so different from the nazi flag you cannot reappropriate a symbol imagine germans try to reappropriate german communists are going to try to reappropriate the nazi flag just like the third reich which murdered millions of people through a process of brutal genocidal colonialism the u.s government did the same thing to indigenous nations to people in iraq in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Venezuela right now, in Iran, in Korea, in Vietnam, you can't just take this symbol and reappropriate it and say it's now a symbol of progressive values and communism and socialism and Marx. This is completely preposterous. And then also that's ignoring the fact that as anyone who spent significant time in the United States knows, people who tend to fly the U.S. flag in the U.S. are almost always on the right wing and very significantly to the right. Even you know, more moderate liberals and progressives tend to not use the U.S. flag. 
You can't just take that historical context and remove it and reappropriate it. I get, I don't want to spend like an hour talking about the debate about the US flag specifically, but it's not just about the flag. I'm just talking about in general that you can't just redefine patriotism and ignore all of that historical baggage and then say now it means something different and progressive. You're not a historical materialist if you try to do that. Marx himself said this is basic Marxism. He said that we are that we uh, we have that we inherit the past and it weighs on us like a like what is it a nightmare on the brain of the living. We hmm. men do not create history, but we inherit we inherit history and it weighs on us like a nightmare on the brain of the living. The, the reality of the history of U.S. Settler colonialism and white supremacy and Jim Crow and genocide. We cannot ignore that, especially because there's never been a process of decolonization. And, you know, you've mentioned it, and I think we need to, we need to be open about it. That includes up to and including sep separation for indigenous communities that want their own nations, their own countries. And, I mean, you know, the Black Belt thesis is no longer, you know, very prominent on the Black left. But if you know, as, a, as an oppressed nation, if black people want that, then like, if you're serious about being a socialist or a communist and, and fighting against national oppression, these are serious discussions we need to have, certainly for Hawaii, certainly for Puerto Rico, certainly for so-called, you know, territories. And even inside the so-called United States, there's nothing holy about these colonial borders in the United States. So like we need to have serious conversations about these. And instead of just like trying to reappropriate these symbols, we should actually have a discussion of what a, an actual socialist government in the territory that is today the United States would look like, including through decolonization. And finally, last thing I'll say is, and this doesn't mean that I'm not one of those people who say like, you should go up to a worker and tell them they're a settler and, and you should burn the, the US flag and say America ka, ka, with three K. Obviously, and I'm not saying we should say America with three K's and all of that. Like, no, clearly, yes, you need to find a way to engage with working people who might might not be familiar with your views, who probably have a lot of baggage and propaganda internalized against communism and socialism, clearly. But there's a huge, there's a big gap in between these MAGA communists who are not communists and these patriotic socialists on one side and like the America caca burn the U.S. flag on the other side. Like, I think obviously people should have the right to burn the U.S. flag, but it's not either or. And that's what these patriotic socialists do is they make they, they make this straw man argument where they say, if you don't support waving the U genocidal U.S. flag and trying to trying to bring back, like, make America great again, even though it was never great, if you don't agree with them, Therefore, you support ethnic cleansing of 200 million people in the United States. Like, that's not a serious argument. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just to one quick addition before we, we close up the conversation. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of issues that people take. It's a very, especially around the flag, but even just this comparison, right, between... Nazism and patri American patriotism, but it, it must be said that let's just take and I think this is a really very, a very, very, very important example. And you mentioned it, Jim Crow. Uh, many people don't know the history about this, right? There was Black Reconstruction after the Civil War. There was a real attempt, a real attempt, to, in my opinion, the first attempt in the United States 
to build bourgeois democracy. I do not believe 1776, 1783, those were not attempts to build bourgeois, quote unquote, democracy. There was still very much vestiges of whatever the hell you want to call it, but it wasn't free, open form, so-called free market capitalism, bourgeois democracy. But black people were leading, right? We have public education in the United States because of black reconstruction. You had this incredible movement to try to actually begin the process of having a working class that was fully equal and black people were leading that, that was fully equal with political rights, right? Not necessarily economic rights because uh, uh, that's where Jim Crow uh, uh, came to be. That's how it came to be. That's where you had the massive lynchings and the state repression, where you had the complete abandonment of the federal government of those who were trying to build this all across you know, the Black Belt and, and all across uh, the former slaver South. And so with that came what was the first, you know, at least that's what uh, I have come to know. It's not a popular opinion, but the first experiment with fascism was Jim Crow, was the complete and total repression of bourgeois democracy itself for black people as a way to suppress the entire class struggle because there was an awareness amongst capital that if all workers had the same rights, then that what would it lead to? It would lead to the eventual met because there was also organizing being done. It, you know, there was the first rudiments of pressure against industrial capital that would then eventually lead into the industrial organizing the future. But Jim Crow was the first experiment and uh, Adolf Hitler himself acknowledged that because he was very much influenced by it. So we have to acknowledge that this history has a profound influence on, if we just want to say the modern GOP, the modern, even just the modern political situation in the United States. And my final word is that I don't think that working class people are dumb. I don't think working class whites are stupid people. I think they understand this history. It's, it's a very painful one. And it's one that still many people participate in right and, and it's not uh it's not something that can be said right there's a lot of people who go and join police forces white and black and they're you know this is how the state works and so these things must be addressed and they they sh if we're serious about socialism then we have to be serious about uh everything i think that we've been bringing up here and, and I'm glad that we were able to have what I think is a final word on this because, you know, I think there was a lot of, and I know some folks who I think are good faith uh, folks who, you know, are, are trying to figure this out themselves. I have my particular position. I know a lot of socialist patriots who, uh, you know, are trying to figure out, well, what's a balance for them? And I'm not saying, right, I, I would say if it were the ideal, but I'm not idealistic. Drop it, you know, drop just it doesn't make any sense. Uh, test it out, but you're probably going to drop it because it's not it's not material. We're not touching and feeling this. We're literally just, uh, you know, reinforcing very common ideas. We're not bringing anything new to the workers. We're not bringing anything new to oppressed people. But if you're not going to do that, at least consider what has been said here and, you know, uh, uh, attempt to apply it and see which, you know, which wins out. 
that's that's really all I ask of those who consider those actual communists, whether they are or not. Right. I don't for me, I don't uh, this is a lot of online stuff. I don't know any of them, but I see the behavior. I see the kind of like Trump uh, uh, worship, a lot of personality stuff, a lot of this. I mean, that's just immature stuff. I mean, it, there's just so much that could be said, but and also the personalities, right? Everyone wants to debate, but when it's not on your terms, right? When it's not on your terms, you want to debate us, but it's not on your terms. And oh no, we can't do it, right? There's a lot of this. There's a lot of weird hedging, and I don't do that stuff, Ben. I know you don't do that. I mean, we we both try to conduct our work very professionally in the broadest sense. But if you were to take the Leninist concept of professional revolutionary, you don't engage in distractions. That's why we focus on the ideas, the concepts, the fact that no one is the property of ideas. Even Lenin himself, Marx himself, they're not the, that's not their property. They didn't, they didn't come up with it so you could just valorize them and worship them. I, I mean, I got a lot of love for them. But at the same time, that's not, that, that, that's not it. It's that these ideas come from a material base and they are then debated and struggled with both on the streets, on the ground, and also in real intellectual conversations, disagreements that are done in good faith. But a lot of this is, is not. It's, it's about we're right and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I have a few thoughts, a few closing thoughts here. Just one final word on this flag issue, because sometimes it becomes like a big debate about the flag. And obviously, this whole debate about so-called patriotic socialism is not just about the flag, although the symbolism can make it easy to get trapped in that. So that's why we wait until the end to talk about this. I just want to mention briefly here, Lenin himself always strongly emphasized the importance of fighting against what he called greater Russian chauvinism. He always highly emphasized the importance of socialists in the Russian empire to challenge greater Russian chauvinism. And the, the Bolsheviks were not around waving Russian flags. The, the Russian model is important to study because for better or for worse, the reality of history is that the Russian revolution was the only successful socialist revolution ever in an imperialist country. That's the reality of history. I think Marx was right about almost everything, but there are a few things he was wrong about, Marx and Engels. They thought that the, the socialist revolution would start in the most developed, industrialized capitalist nations, especially Germany. It didn't happen. There was an attempt in 1918 in, in Germany, and it was crushed, ironically, with the support of the Social Democrats in alliance with the far right, with the kind of MAGA of Germany, if you will, make Germany great again, people, the Freikorps. Anyway, the point is that the Russian example is interesting because every other successful socialist revolution since then has been in a colonized or partially colonized country. Mao's analysis of China, it was partially colonized, partially feudal, partially capitalist. So furthermore, the Bolsheviks were not going around waving the czarist Russian flag. On the contrary, the Bolsheviks were attacked by other people on the left, including the so-called socialist revolutionaries who are neither socialists nor revolutionaries. They were attacked by them for the Treaty of Brest. What was the Treaty of Brest? In 1918, the Bolsheviks ended the Russian Empire and they gave away what had been part territories of the Russian Empire. And a lot of people on the so-called left in Russia were very angry against them, very angry at them because they they just uh, they had uh, they worshipped 
the imperial borders of the Russian Empire, just as a lot of these so-called patriotic socialists cannot imagine parts of colonial U.S. territory being given up and these sacred borders with 50 states and whatever, these territories. No, I mean, there's nothing sacred, nothing in stone. And I think anyone who's serious about socialism and especially revolutionary socialism should not in any way be concerned about these colonial borders. There's the issue of the flags as well. What happened after the, the Russian Revolution? They created a new flag. What happened after the Chinese Revolution? The, the Chinese dynasties had many different flags. They created a new flag. So, I mean, I, I don't want to make this make this all about the flag, right? This is it's a much larger debate. But the point is, the flag is a symbol of the larger contradiction. The, Lenin was, was warning against greater Russian chauvinism, and he, he gave away large parts of the Russian Empire because he understood the project of building socialism was not about preserving the Russian Empire. Now, there's another point I wanted to, we, I know this is the end. I know you've got to go. We're almost at two hours. This is a, a whole other long conversation, but I just need to bring it up. I mentioned the, the F word, fascism, right? I'm not saying that every single person who, especially younger people who might have been interested in this whole patriotic socialism thing and might be well-intentioned, I'm not saying that they're all fascists, but they genuinely are fascists literal fascists who are calling themselves patriotic socialists and so-called MAGA communists who are not communists. And we need to understand that fascism, yes, fascism is the tool that the capitalist class uses at times of capitalist crisis to crush the left and any systemic alternatives to save capitalism at a moment of crisis. As, as was famously said, fa fascism is capitalism in decay. Okay, yeah, that's true. Fascism is also a little more complicated. Fascism has always been syncretic in the sense that fascists have always willingly tried to co-opt and exploit and distort elements of the left and combine it with the far right. We see this throughout history. We see this with the so-called third position or third positionism. Fascists say, oh, we're neither left nor right. And when you see this kind of rhetoric, it's not the left versus right. We should left and right unite against the center. The left has never called for that. Fascists have. And then, of course, what they do is they, they destroy the left after. It's not a coincidence that the Nazis, who are not socialists, I'm not saying that they were socialists, they were not in any way. In fact, the Nazis oversaw more capitalist privatization than any other country in Europe in the 1930s, the Nazis. Of course, they did so with massive slave labor. It was actually bringing back to feudalism. And in many ways, fascism is bringing back feudalism. And elements with capitalism, right? With industrial capitalism, but feudalism, enslavement, which was a huge part of the feudal economy, extermination and genocide to remove indigenous populations to, to have these large plantations, which is exactly, you know, the U.S. feudal capitalist model. So anyway, but the point is that when you see these people who are like, it's not left versus right, trying to co-opt elements of left-wing rhetoric, there's a historical precedent, precedent of that. Uh, Mussolini himself came out of the Italian Socialist Party. He was not a socialist. In fact, Mussolini later said, he wrote, people ask us, what, he's talking about the fascists. People ask us, the fascists, what our, what our mission is. Our mission is to crush the skull of the socialists, to crush the skulls of the socialists. Mussolini said that. I'm not saying that the Nazis and the, and the, the fa Italian fascists were socialists. They were not socialists. The first people in the concentration camps created by the Nazis were the communists and then labor organizers and socialists and Romani and Jews and LGBT people and black people and, and disabled people. But the first people were communists. And that famous slogan from Niemöller, it's 
when they came for the communists, I said nothing. The first word is the communists. So the point is that fascism has a history of portraying itself as anti-hegemonic, even revolutionary, portraying as itself as against the state, even against the bourgeoisie, even though we know that the, the, the German bourgeois elements, especially the big bourgeoisie, used the Nazis to try to destroy the communists. And in the case of Italy, the Italian monarchy welcomed in Mussolini because the Italian monarchy thought that Mussolini could be used to destroy the communists in Italy. And it was the communists in both Germany and Italy who defeated fascism. So, but we need to understand again that this idea of syncretic politics, of trying to take elements of the right and left and combine them, is something that fascists have done historically. And when you see these so-called patriotic socialists, you will some, I've seen them, these weirdos on Twitter. Again, they're not in real life. It's, this is mostly just online. But you'll see them quoting sometimes Mussolini or actual fascists or whatever. Like, no, no, that, that, that's not, there's nothing left-wing about that. That is third positionism. That is literal fascism. So we just need to be very careful about these kinds of things because there are actual fascists trying to exploit this rhetoric. And the whole idea of trying to combine the far right and the left, that's the left, no left-wing movement that was ever successful has ever done that. It, mm. is, it is simply a disaster. It's a recipe for disaster and it is profoundly unserious. Well, I think we can put the final word on this there. Um, I do, uh, uh, do want to say thank you, Ben. Um, I, I do, uh, unfortunately, yes, do need to go soon. I do need, need to get to a few announcements, but... It was good to have you on today. Uh, please do follow Ben at Multipolarista in all the different ways. Support it. And yeah, we'll talk again soon. And everyone stick around because I got some announcements coming up. Thanks, Danny. It was a real pleasure. And, and I'm glad we could talk about this because uh, I don't plan on talking about it anymore after this. So when people ask, I'll be like, check out this video I did with Danny. Thanks. All right. Take care.